Oh, this is one that I've been looking forward to. I, uh, I reached out to this person on Twitter, as I do, because I found her work interesting. And she wanted to be on the show. She also sent me her book to read, which I was interested in because it's related to my work. And her book is great. Um, it's not new anymore, so it's not a hot new book for the people, but you should definitely read it. Um, and we're going to talk about her book, and you know my show by now. Uh, we're going to talk about whatever else comes up. Um, I didn't say anything about what show this is. This is Unstandardized English. My name is J.P.B. Gerald. This is a show where we talk about epistemological whiteness and racial-linguistic ideologies. You know, I actually put that in the description on Twitter, and I haven't said it on the show yet because I am not disciplined. Um, I have to thank a couple of patrons. I have to thank Dr. Nicole Pettit, who was also a guest on the show a while back, big supporter of mine in the field. I have to thank Jessica Rose for anyone who is interested in supporting the show. If you have the funds and you're willing and find it interesting, please do. The link will be in the description. It's all right if you can't. Plenty of things you don't need money for, and I don't think my show is the most important, but um, I now have transcripts, as I mentioned. And I put the transcript, or I will send the transcript to anyone who asks. Um, but yeah, so like I said, today, really interesting show with uh, Dr. Nedemakbula. Uh, I mangled the consonant at the end of the first syllable of her last name there, because I thought too hard about it. But she will correct me in a moment. Anyway, you'll hear our conversation next. So welcome back, folks, to Unstandardized English. I am J.P.B. Gerald, but you knew that because I just said it in the intro a second ago. Uh, this is an episode I've been looking forward to since I put it together a month ago or something like that. Um, we're going to talk about the limits of whiteness with the author of the book, Dr. Neda Mafula. I think I got that. All right, good. I got Killed it. Killed it. Killed yes. it. All right. Wow. So, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and a little bit about your work before we go into the conversation? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored to uh, be asked to join you. And uh, you did such a beautiful job pronouncing my name. It is Neda Marboule. This has basically never happened to me in academia or in any kind of uh, engagement I've had. Uh, so I super appreciate the care you took to get my name right. Um, I am a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto in Canada. Um, in my job, I hold something called the Canada Research Chair in Migration, Race, and Identity, and that's kind of an umbrella that the research projects and the kinds of scholarly conversations I'm trying to contribute to, they kind of fall under that banner or that mandate. Um, and so, yeah, my first book was called The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race. And um, I'm continuing that line of research, but also have a new project on board here in Canada with Syrian refugees. Um, and I am just super excited to talk with you about language and power and all of the good things that you're the expert on i don't know about expert but things that i'm at least interested in um yeah so what the book which you all should read um 
got me thinking about, especially uh, aside from learning a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know about Iranian Americans and a lot of conversations that are being had within the community that I just, why, why would I know? Um, it got me thinking about whiteness and one of the things that's been coming up this year, because I've been doing presentations on whiteness and teaching on it um, in language teaching. Uh, and one of the things that comes up is because we're all online, I've been doing presentations for people around the world because that's I can do that now, right? And some people have asked me questions like, well, okay, you're American, so you're speaking from your context. And I am, obviously, I know where I live, but how does that apply here? And they're in some other place, right? You know, they're in Japan, they're in India or something like that. And, you know, aren't you speaking of a, a purely American thing, right? And I admit that I'm speaking from my vantage point, right? But this is this is kind of a global thing and it affects people everywhere, whether or not they are considered white. And that's, a, that's one of the things, you know, from my own research perspective that really resonated uh, with me as I was reading the work. So, that's not a question, um, but <laughs> I mean, like that, that's just really what, what stuck out to me from my own research perspective. And then of course, there's all the stuff that we can talk about, about um, the community that I didn't know about. So, I mean, what did you think about, I mean, you have a, a relationship to whiteness that uh, is not one that I had really thought about um, beforehand. You know, when we think about all the different acronyms, um, where do you all fit? Mm -hmm. Right, you know, uh, where where would you like to fit? Would you like to be completely somewhere else from all of the acronyms? You know, like these <laughs> these are questions that I I hadn't thought of because I I don't even know if I was describing folks as like BIPOC or something like where mm -hmm. where I don't know what I would do, and I don't think it's up for me to decide. But ultimately, in especially in the United States and Canada, we must have a category. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, I so appreciate the comments you started off with about, um, you know, if when you initiate conversations about whiteness and you're talking with an audience that's situated in different national contexts, um, you know, there's like, I think, a, a common reaction sometimes. And I get it. Just like you said, it's merited, right? That academia is certainly structured in a kind of American imperial formula where people, especially like situated in the US, even if you're doing a project of global importance, they want to know, well, what does that mean for America? Or how does that relate to the American case? So I get that our colleagues who are situated in other environments are like sick of that, right? And they're really um, pushing against the imposition of American norms or American modes of thinking into, you know, sort of a universal explanation of things. But at the same time, I think what you're pointing out about whiteness as a global phenomenon, one that we can certainly trace through history, but also even more recently, right, in terms of just globalization and the sort of trafficking of different ideas, I think um, no society sort of can wash its hands away and say, like, we don't have a relationship to whiteness, you know, or that isn't a category that we're having to contend with. That's just simply, like, impossible. So I appreciate that you kind of started us off with that, with that conversation. And then in terms of um, where the rubber hits the road, right, with communities um, that share characteristics with the group I wrote about in my first book, right? So I was focused on Iranians, but so much of the, as you read, right, the political um, struggles that, that they may be a part of in terms of representation or, um, 
you know, sort of where they fit in the U.S. racial regime, it, it does have to do with matters that affect Middle Easterners more broadly, people in the quote-unquote MENA category, so Middle Easterners or North Africans. Of course, even the concept of the Middle East is like a highly contested category that's been problematized as a kind of European imposition and a colonial, um, you know, sort of... Uh, ghost that we could do away with and so there's you know movements within the community to rebrand aswana as a kind of regional descriptor which would stand for southwest asian and north african and so um suffice to say like i particularly writing this as a pre-tenure faculty right it was based on my phd dissertation i was trying to make my way in these academic streets and so i go to great lengths in the book to say like this is not a prescriptive you know, diagnosis of like what this community should do or what the right move is, but rather like I'm trying to kind of lay out the the different um, power dynamics and to sort of say, right, like this is the different kinds of issues that people are having to contend with. But I go to great lengths to basically avoid answering the question of like, what should people want to be called or, you know, is it all just kind of beside the point anyway. Um, and weirdly, even with tenure, I still sort of, I think I've been habituated into that type of a stance of given, right, the kind of training we get, especially in sociology, but I think in other allied fields too, where um, uh, you're kind of trained away from uh, having some sort of prescription that you're handing people, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what you think about that. You know, you talk about prescription and diagnosis and all that, and I think that that's interesting because what I'm starting to work on, which uh, I guess by the time this comes out, I will have announced, but I'm still not going to say anything, uh, is, you know, it's this overly complex idea, because that's how, you know, how we think, overly complex um, idea about, um, you know, whiteness deciding what disorders are, you know. Mm. And so therefore, uh, because it is the order, right? And it sort of ties into what you're saying about the Middle East, right? When, when you're saying the Middle East, it's because there is an East and there's a Middle East based upon where Europe is. Yeah. Right? East of what? That's right. the perennial question. Yeah. Yes. Right? And it's the same, it's not the same in terms of hierarchy, but it's the same idea as the Midwest and the United States, right? Because everything started on the East. So mm -hmm. then it was like, there was the West and it, they weren't that far West. Um, and like, not the same in terms of like hegemony and all that, but still it's the same idea that they started from a place and then people are over there and these people are not as far over there. Mm -hmm. um, and like, yeah, with the, the MENA group, um, you know, the acronym, it's like, that's still a giant region. <laughs> it's not, it's not like the size of Connecticut or something like that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a lot of people and a lot of different peoples. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes people get a little, um, they want to throw up their hands and say, look, all of this defining, like, I just, I don't even want to think about it. Um, and I get it you know, especially if you're part of the groups yourselves. But on the other hand, like if you're from the dominant group and dominant group isn't just about race, of course, but we're talking about that. Uh, it's, it behooves people to listen to how people are developing these ideas. And I think that that's, there's many issues, but that's one of the, the, the main issues that I sort of thought about in terms of people trying to define themselves without having to contend with what people what's being imposed upon them 
Um, yeah, I think that's such a thank you for that. That's a really sharp analysis of, you know, like one of the main points that I hope was coming through in the book. And for sure, like in sociology, we take the issue of categorization really seriously. Like we certainly um, are trained to problematize categories, but we're fundamentally like kind of bean counters, like in the field of academia, right? Like our colleagues in ethnic studies, black studies, educational studies, they're kind of out there visioning different futures, alternative worlds. Sociologists at our best can help with those projects, but we're fundamentally kind of the people who are the record keepers of the present day, right? Like we're sort of the ones that are taking the snapshots and um, creating a kind of composite of like what's going on. And so the idea of categories, I think, is fundamentally like one that I take seriously. And so as much as I could critique or think about, you know, something like the the census in a in a very critical way, fundamentally, I think, um, you know, for me, it's a very important site to consider because even the way in the United States we have quote unquote counted race demographically has changed throughout the course of the census. It used to be that you had external people, like enumerators who would come to your house, they would visually inspect you, and then they got to be the ones who determined, right, what race got checked off for your household. And then there was a shift over time to where the census didn't use that kind of enumeration anymore, and people were asked to self-identify. And that's like a really big change, right, in terms of how the nation would count its population. And so this turn away from external classification toward people self-identifying for race certainly like has really significant implications for a case like mine that we're talking about right because as you may know if you know any iranians or middle eastern people in your life or if you may have like checked out even the paragraph on the back of my book uh, part of the backstory here is like these are also communities that come with their own ideas or their myths or their own histories that they're socialized into learning in their schools, quote unquote, back there, right? And so um, people arrive to new worlds and new lands already possessing certain kinds of self-IDs. And so when something like the United States Census is asking immigrants to self-ID, you would imagine those immigrants are also bringing, right, some of their own racial origin stories from their homelands and that those are not necessarily going to map onto the racial categories we know and ascribe to here in the U.S. in a kind of easy way. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm technically in education studies, although I'm too impatient and unfocused to sit still in there. Uh, but my degree is going to be in EDD. And um, the I try to learn a lot from sociologists and anthropologists um, because I think sometimes uh, people in education studies and just teachers in general like to only talk to teachers about things and then they say, well, you're, you're not a teacher, so I'm not going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, everybody does that, but I think it happens a lot in teaching and it annoys me. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm trying to annoy the field, but you know, um, as far as at thinking about relationships I've had, like one the, one of the not that we were super close, but one of the closest relationship I had with with the Iranian was an older woman who was when I used to work at a senior center, and she was I don't know how old she was, but she had to be over sixty because that's how how old you had to be to be in the senior center, and uh, she definitely thinking about the chapter where you're talking about like. The idea that um, Iranian comes from Aryan and, and all and, and all these things that people were saying, like she definitely 
she she said she's from Iran, but she's like, I'm Persian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay. You're like, uh, noted. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> right there. Um, and she was very clear that this was how she was going to identify. Um, and I'm just like a sample size of one, but like, you know, she was also very posh in a lot of ways. And, and so I was like, okay. I, uh, I don't know if it's representative of a large group of people, but I know that this is what she's telling me. Mm-hmm. And it's something I'd never considered before. Obviously, you know, not spending as much time thinking about these things before those points, you know, it's one of the, the issues is that you don't realize that people are going to define themselves differently from what you've been told to identify them as. Um, and obviously, you know, the United States and our many problems with the things that we do around the world like i uh i knew that what we were doing was bad but it was hard to sort out the badness from the different badness you know from the way we treat this country and that country mm-hmm. right you know especially because at the time we were engaged in so much you know i'm talking more about the 2000s like you know i was in college i was like there was so much that was bad but it, it, it was just hard to sort out Mm-hmm. weird threatening language sure. from the active engaged wars that were happening and I was just like yes. you know there's so you know it, it sometimes seems like everyone in the MENA group has just it's just interchangeable targets to the United States and other you know imperialist regimes not just the United States to be clear but you know um, and I think that that you know we have always been at war situation thing you know that very Orwellian thing that we do helps people, uh, prevents people from seeing these groups as, um, you know, having their own history and their own mm-hmm. life and their own culture. I don't think most people here would know what Iranian culture is like, aside from the very little bit that they've learned in the news. That's true mm-hmm. for a lot of places, but it's particularly true in a place that, like, it's not like six people in Iran, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the same time, I think, uh, like, although one, I guess, could make the argument that, like, it would be so great if, like, the sort of average American had some sort of exposure to Iranian culture or civilization or something. Like, I also try really hard to not make those kinds of nationalistic arguments um, because there are chauvinistic and problematic in their own right but also I think they're somewhat removed from perhaps not the anxieties or urgencies that was felt by the women that you you know became like befriended in the senior center but for like the young people who were involved in my study these would be you know for the most part they were kids that were born in the United States this was primarily like their sort of um fundamental identification was with the United States, right? So um, for them, I think it wasn't so much like I want uh, my American counterparts to really see me as the Iranian that I am and to, to appreciate my specificity or anything like that. But it was really about that piece you just mentioned about the kind of dehumanization fundamentally of groups that the United States has either been in a literal or a symbolic war with throughout the course of these young people's lives, right? And so I personally noticed more of those kinds of tendencies toward like, can't they appreciate like the beauty of Iranian culture and those sorts of things. That's more like a mode and a 
an ethos that I observed with older generations, but in terms of like the young people, they were very much sort of, um, you know, touched by exactly as you said, the forever war, clear, of course, 9-11 and the, you know, immense level of surveillance and, uh, you know, securitization that almost, you know, literally overnight with the Patriot Act initiated TSA and all of those other regimes that now we take for granted completely, like those actually, are relatively new still <laughs> in U.S. history. They just became incredibly entrenched overnight with apparently no, you know, rolling that back, uh, you know. Um, and so, yeah, those are the kinds of things that, that really drove um, the, the issues that were the most urgent to young people in my study. Yeah, because people talk about they want to abolish ICE and they should, but if you abolish ICE and leave the CBP in place, then you're not, I mean, it's the same idea. You know, it's just a different acronym. Um, mm -hmm. This is not to say not to do it. <laughs> I'm saying like the modern version of the American immigration system is like 100 years old, like since mm -hmm. like 1924 or something like that. So, we, there's, there's a lot we got to get rid of. It's not, you know, that the, the, this version of it is new and it's built on, it, like, it's built on an idea of, yeah. you know, the, the, the threatening people out there. Um, so let me get back because I have many things I want to, I don't want to forget. Um, right. So one of the things you touch on is these ideas of like hierarchies within Middle Eastern groups. Um, and this, it's not the same thing, but it reminds me of arguments I've heard amongst very various Caribbean friends I've had who you talk about this island like this, this island like this island, and you know, and I just sort of sit back and I try to listen because I don't have anything worthwhile to say. Um, but it's um, you know, I don't want to be all you know Pollyanna about it, you know, but like I think that it really we flatten so much of the people from places that we don't know that much about. And I don't mean we as Americans, I just mean we as people in this sense, um, that it makes it so that a book like this or a subject like this, not just the book, but the work that it's based on is, you know, this shouldn't need to be novel is what I'm saying, uh -huh. you know? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it kind of connects to like a really, early experience I had as a university student, like in college, as an undergrad, um, I had a really transformational professor named Janetta Condelario, who, um, she was like born and raised in New Jersey, Dominicana. Um, her entire trajectory in sociology had been to um, really initiate one of the first book length monographs that was about racism and the way it structures Dominican relations with other West Indian and Caribbean nations and what does that mean for communities in New York and New Jersey right that are sort of contending with um, various forms of like anti-blackness and also just colonial histories like what does that mean for for people growing up in the U.S. and so that I had this mentor who like absolutely forged a trail in social sciences at least around Latino studies and Caribbean studies and um, her book Black Behind the Ears is just like now it's canon but at the time that she was my professor like she was untenured her book was like just about to come out and she was um, just really like rugged and raw with me about the like 
what it meant to study a group that was really like invisibilized in the in the literature and I had like a incredible role model in front of me who literally like in straight up just said like you should be the one to do this for your group you know like I'm out here and I'll tell you the good bad and the ugly about what it means to do quote-unquote me search you know and the different kinds of barriers people will put on you or assumptions um and you know like what does it mean to to really like produce a monograph where you're not apologizing for studying this group that really has no kind of academic record on the library shelves. Um, she was like, there's good and bad parts to it, but if you want to do this, like I will teach you the ways. <laughs> and so that changed the course of my life, truly, you know? So I credit her for really emboldening me um, to, you know, as you said, like um, write a book on something that maybe hadn't yet been published and perhaps, you know, um it's a sorry state of affairs maybe <laughs> it like took this long but it sort of is what it is you know uh I mean because the stuff that I do I am not a patient person and the thing is that um I had this very when I got into my doctoral program I had this pretty straightforward problem of practice, whatever I was going to focus on. And I, I knew it was going to change, but I went in because I've told this on the podcast a few times. Sorry, listeners, but it, it's important. So it's important for the trajectory. So I uh, I came in and I was I used to work at a nonprofit, the same place where I worked at the senior center, but my main job was running the adult education program there. So like, like you know, language teachers mm-hmm. is what I did, right? And um, the program was free. So a lot of people would just sort of sign up and then not come. I said, well, this is true of a lot of free programs. So what can I do to, to find a way that would like substantively just like really increase attendance in, in a free program so that I could tell this to all these free programs and they could figure out how to increase attendance. So, you know, it was going to be very quantitative. I said, all right, I'm going to find something. And I was doing initial just literature abuse stuff in my first couple of semesters. And uh, I started coming across research that wasn't specifically about language teaching, but was about adult education programs and like coming across like race and racism, right? And I was like, okay, well, that's not really surprising, you know? Um, And then I started asking questions to people about it and then they got really uncomfortable. And I said, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even even researching that. It's just a Mm -hmm. question. I said a question about this and you got, you had, you just started having a problem. And I was like, so then, so like my research is about that. (laughs) It's like, it's, it's about both the problem they had with, that and all the rabbit hole I went down from there and and then my experience coming to terms with like I spent decades like I think with a block in my head about just sort of denying the impact that racism had had on me because I didn't Mm. grow up I didn't grow up um, in a difficult situation financially like you know I had for all intents and purposes uh, a, a comfortable life I went to you know exclusive schools and all that but it was still there. And I knew that there were bad incidents, but I didn't think about all of the things put together having had an impact on me. And then I'm this, now I'm like the one black student in my cohort. And like, I just like race just keeps it. I said, well, I just gonna have to do this then. It's just, I need to do it. And like a lot of my writing is me going through the understanding process of what's Mm -hmm. happened with me and everything. And 
there's a lot of research on when I got into the program, the director of the program said that a lot of people doing research on race. That's true, but it's mostly white people doing research on black people. And it's not very good. So <laughs> it's a little bit different <laughs> to, to, to be doing it from, and I'm not really like cataloging trauma. Like I'm not interested in that. Yep. You know, I don't, I, I, yeah. I yeah, so yeah, no, fundamentally, I think what you're describing is that you are actually studying how racism operates, like as a process, not as a kind of social location that people either occupy or they don't check yes or no, right? You're actually tracing the way this thing evolves and what effects it has on people and the kind of, you know, like weird little life of its own that it has. And that's fundamentally different than um you know like uh tracking or identifying within certain people or communities or bodies right something that's like a problem that you're measuring or that you're studying and so yeah um, yeah that's that's really deep um and one of the things that that I have found interesting about it is that like every time I start to be like you know, focusing on decentering whiteness and language teaching, which is ultimately the main goal, right? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't, you know, this is not. And then some stuff happens, and I'm like, oh, okay, all right then. And it, it's all, it's like every couple of weeks this happens, and and then like some stuff happens, uh, and I'm like, nope, nope, I need to do this uh, because because like it's the reason I brought this up is because when I said that it, it it's sort of a shame that it needed to be novel. It's like when I wrote the article and it's just an article that came out in May about like decentering white and language teaching. Like if you Google that, it's my article. There's, there's not, a, there's not right. a whole bunch I of I know. Them. I even read it before the podcast actually <laughs> <laughs> to try to get, <laughs> to get to know the scholar behind the podcast a bit better. Yeah. And it's, it's really, really like fundamental stuff. And I think that that is so important that you're out there like getting this work circulated kudos to you because um yeah you know like these are conversations again exactly like you said like um damn like we're publishing this in 2020 or like you know in the case of my book in 2017 um yeah somebody just has to sometimes put pen to paper right I think that that happens and it's not just this subject but with any you know axis of oppression that um people and this is part of the system of oppression is that people think and i thought um well somebody must have just done this already so i'm not gonna like you know and it's like Mm -hmm. you know it's like it's it must be like this can't be i can't be the first person to do this Mm -hmm. you know um or this must have been done somewhere else and somebody else must have had this idea and maybe someone had this idea but they never did it and i said to myself well maybe they were trying to get it published and it didn't get through. It's possible. Mm-hmm. There's no yeah. way to, there's no way to know this. Right. Um, but uh it's like you don't know until you actually do it. Like that's you don't, true. You don't know. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> and I think you raised such an important point about the kind of shadow projects or papers that didn't come out that we'll never know about. Because this, you know, speaking about my book, this easily could have been like a ghost, like a thing that didn't happen. Because I was a naive person who had genetic condylario 
pouring, right, all that sort of love and mentorship into me. And then I try to apply to grad school. And basically, it's a bunch of gatekeepers trying to block this project. And they're saying to me, like, that's cool that you did a thesis with your professor in undergrad, like, congratulations to you. But, you know, the message I kept getting over and over again was like, we would accept you to our program. But basically, the condition is like, you can't do this project. Like this project sucks. And so gatekeepers fundamentally would give me the message that like, um, you know, this is not interesting to sociologists. Um, this is a community that for all intents and purposes is counted as white, is treated as white. They're living white lives. They quote unquote made it. So like focus your energy somewhere else. You should become an inequality scholar or a strat scholar and do X, Y, and Z, right? Because this is fundamentally an uninteresting community to us because by our index and standards, they've quote unquote made it. And I was like, you know, this is such a referendum on your whiteness, frankly. <laughs> like you think like of uh, this community has sort of, you know, uh, it's like ineligible for analysis because it is subsumed under whatever the category is or the lived experience that you're assuming. Um, and I just thought to myself, like, okay, like I, you know, on a practical level, I was like, I've got these like handful of places that have offered me admission. I like have to go to the place where there was the least of this kind of blocking behavior in the one-on-ones with faculty, right? Um, like I have to go to the program that's not the top ranked program I got into, but it's the one where I think they're gonna let me survive. And I might actually graduate with my dignity and my project intact probably. Um, so that's, you know, that's no, not something I've ever said like on a podcast or in a kind of conversation before, but it's the truth. You know, I can I just pull my Dr. Phil thing, get people to be confessional or something. Um, <laughs> uh, but so that sort of goes both ways though, because it reminds me of some of the articles I've read about how, when people point out the issues with whiteness, that white people call upon their ethnicity to say, well, you know, actually I'm Italian. Uh, so I can't possibly be a part of this. Whereas they'll say to someone of some racialized group well but think you're you're fine mostly because like basically like you have money or something mm -hmm. like that right mm -hmm. you know and, yes uh, and so uh it, it it's not quite the same thing obviously but i just know the the reason it took me so long to figure out what was happening with racism is because people told me like you went to these schools you're fine mm -hmm. you're fine shut up um, and it reminds me, I don't know if you heard that story that just came out with the, the actor was on Heroes when he was talking about, um, his, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, so it just, you know, just, he was talking about this 15 years ago, the story, but he's talking about that. And like, only when it had already happened, did they even say anything about race? So if you're telling people that, and they aren't in the same community as you, you just come off unstable. <laughs> and you know because you're just like really mad about something that yeah. you know is like had race it was right was right there but they didn't say it so you can't say it because then it's like oh here you go he's playing mm -hmm. the race card mm -hmm. um these these these, uh, these older gentlemen who i was speaking about from a couple of weeks ago 
know, maybe it was three weeks ago now, who were having issues with me. Um, you know, one of them literally used the he's playing the race card. I was like, wow, he played the race card card. <laughs> like, like, you know, like that's like, mm-hmm. I actually did a bingo, like like an anti-racist bingo at my, <laughs> my birthday. Like I did a Zoom party like uh-huh. in, in June and the, the, the like final thing that we did was like a bingo and like people, you know, it was like a board and it was like shuffled and so forth. And then like, it was all things that, people who pretend they're not racist say like Chicago or Baltimore or, you know, right. like the race car, yes. right? And, and um, like these-, these They men, think they're like, real slick and these yeah. are like euphemisms <laughs> for something, yes. It's like, well, it was like, what do you mean by that? That's what I like to ask people mm-hmm. when I say, I act to ask questions because I feel like I just get them to tell them themselves when I ask questions because he didn't get to the race card and all that stuff until I asked him a bunch of questions first. Um, and I used to, you know, just nod my head and move on because mm-hmm. I just don't need, I don't need that. But now I made a point of saying that I'm going to be this person. I kind of do need to deal with it sometimes. Um, if only because people are paying attention to what I say to some extent. So I kind of have yeah. to say stuff, which mm-hmm. is, it can be draining sometimes, you know, to fight with these people. Um, and I don't like to do it. My wife thinks it's too consuming she's like you've been thinking about this all day Justin." i'm like yeah but i need to make this point on the internet um (laughs) but uh you know i do think that like especially in my field in language teaching you know these conversations especially in the way that i'm having them haven't been had publicly Mm -hmm. i thought that i'd be getting a lot more resistance than i have been Mm -hmm. because i just figured the reason it hasn't been published is because people don't want to hear it, which might be true. But when I do the presentations, people are really into it. And I realize like there's this sort of groundswell of people who see these issues in the field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm sure you felt that way about your work. There's like there's a there's a lot of people who are supportive of this work that's sort of trying to challenge the status quo. But the people in charge of the status quo, not only are they comfortable with the status quo but they want you to think that everyone is comfortable with the status quo. And that second part, like the first part, we all know. We know the first part. We know that they're comfortable with their own power, but they want you to think that everyone is comfortable with that. The same way that everyone used to tell me that, no, 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 nobody does drugs. It's like, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's so true. If you just isolate everyone from one another, right? And sort of disempower them from the ability to see each other and to make those connections, then you don't understand that actually the critical mass is on your side probably in the field, right? Nobody, it's like, no, nobody believes that, you know? And it's like, wait wait a second, wait a second. Because one of the things that I've wondered, and I don't want to do it because now I've done enough of this that I can't hide and and do this experiment. But I think that Mm -hmm. I'd get more pushback if I had tried at the beginning of doing more of these presentations, if I subsumed it under like DEI, Mm -hmm. right? And then started talking about whiteness, then people would have been like, oh, you know, uh, it's because like all of the presentations I do about my article, they, they're not just about the article. I, I start by going through like a 15 minute explanation of some terms about racism and so forth. And like, these are how I define these terms. And I build up to the point that like whiteness is like a colonial construct and therefore isn't actually really different from white supremacy. And then people, mm. and then if I came into diversity talking about that, 
then they yes. would they would not be they would not be happy. <laughs> but because the presentation says whiteness on it, then they kind of know what I'm going to say, and then yes. they're just there being supportive. So that's yes. nice. I get, I get like one person in every presentation who's just like, well, we shouldn't define people by their color, and then I'm just like, you didn't pay attention to anything I said. You paid yes. attention to because that's not what I said. Mm. Um, I think that's so interesting. And I mean, I don't know if this is allowed on your podcast, but I really want to ask a question of you now that I have you on the line and I can ask you this um, again with an expert here. Um, okay. So in my new project, I mentioned, right. Um, it's this team-based like sort of ethnographic qualitative study longitudinal over five years with um, really recently resettled Syrian refugees in Toronto. And one of the uncomfortable kind of early findings for my team, and I've been like working through it with the RAs and trying to talk about it, but it's tough. And I think you would be such a wonderful person to help shed light on this dynamic is like one of the awkward things is these newcomer mothers who are in English courses that are subsidized by the government, highly encouraged, they have childcare, right? So sort of incentivizing in any way possible that people come and attend. I feel like one of the anecdotal patterns we've noticed is certainly about like the connection to the teacher, but it's also sometimes about like the mother's belief that the teacher is a good teacher or the right teacher who could actually be an effective English teacher. And that is really problematic sometimes and highly racialized right like who in the eyes of the student like a good English teacher could be and I know that there's like copious literature on it that my team is you know delving into to help us unpack this but it's that awkward thing where like you know participants who you come to to love and you have to sort of understand people as like flawed and imperfect <laughs> you know people um they just say hectic stuff and you're like yo so um yes i just feel like it's my moment to ask you because you know this is kind of your wheelhouse and it's not my wheelhouse like what do you do in these situations i mean i don't have a better answer for you as far as what you do while you're talking to them but i mean because you you have your own you know methodology and all that but as far as like how because like that's kind of the one of the things that thinking about decentering whiteness in the field would change it so that people don't see that an English teacher must look a certain way, right? You know, you know, Vijay Ramjitan, right? You know, yes, and, yeah, yes. Yeah, been on, he was on the most recent episode of the show. Um, the one that was, I, by the time this is out there, it will have been two episodes ago. But um, mm -hmm. anyway, he, you know, his whole thing about aesthetic labor. Yes. Um, and Thank you for featuring Toronto so much on your podcast, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> we just, appreciate the love. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. Your seat has been on it and Alice Kim has been on it. So like, Amazing. yeah, I've been a bunch of Toronto people. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I met a lot of people when I went to AERA last year. So, you know, I mean, cool. was in Toronto um, and yeah. I met BJ there. But anyway, uh, you know, that's because that's one of the big problems. I mean, it's not the biggest problem, but it is a problem because, you know, I could say all this stuff about how we need to change the way that people are hired and we we do and we need to change the curriculum and we do but this has been going on for hundreds of years not this literal thing but this idea of English teaching as such is like a you know thing that's being pushed through colonialism and all of that and it not, doesn't even have to be in a textbook that people see that English emanates from one kind of body mm -hmm. you know like and then not just that but 
the, not just the teaching, but the epistemology. You know, yes. they, it will not be trusted if they see it as coming from like somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to fix that tomorrow. It's one of the things yeah. that I'm th- thinking about, you know, <laughs> for the next several decades, because like they, I, I like, I like, I don't know that I, it's, it's, it's annoying, but I, I don't know that I blame them for just being swept up in the water that we're all in. And like, I can take a step back and see that this is not correct, but mm-hmm. I also have been trying to pay attention to this for a while. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's like, I don't, if you just asked me, I didn't even think about native speakerism as an issue yeah. when, I, when I started teaching English because it, I, it just, I just didn't know it was a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I got the job in Korea because I was a quote unquote native speaker. Um, and I went off with my life mm-hmm. and I came back to New York and I started my master's and like, you know, these things didn't come up that much in my master's, which is part of the problem. <laughs> like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I had to get, I had to really take a step back from teaching because I did do language teaching. I haven't been an official language teacher in a few years um, to notice so many of these issues. Yeah. So I'm kind of not answering your question as to how to solve no, the no, problem. No, 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 you really, <laughs> you're like bringing so much, like these light bulbs are sort of going off for me, which is really like that it is such a, structurally embedded issue that it's not per se about like a particular as you said hiring policy or program that's going to fix it it's really about like the these are these students are savvy they're picking up on everything and so fundamentally in the particular like situation i'm describing it's you know the newcomers are hearing their teachers and their perception of the teacher's way of speaking English is that they have an accent. This connects to VJ stuff, right? And so um, they're like, my teacher has accented English. I want to be learning, quote unquote, like proper English. And the implication here, right, is that like they're going to be learning a form of English that then would impact them negatively for the labor market or for X and Y, Z reasons, right? And so it's really not about like, how do we get people to be less biased towards their teachers? But it's like, oh no, like we actually have to like undermine the way that we think of quote unquote accented English in all facets of society for that trickle down effect to then actually be felt at the level of this like marginalized student who just wants to improve their life, right? Yeah, there's, you know, I think about when I lived in South Korea, there was a a guy I knew who had, learned English um, in Australia and he had he spoke English with a you know standardized Australian accent Mm -hmm. which was unusual in South Korea Um, so you know it was sort of fun to talk to him but like he one thing that was funny about him is he mentioned Australia every two minutes Um, every every, every sentence was like in Australia it's like all right Um, but uh, it is not good or bad it just is that generally if you hear a certain version of a language and you're trying to learn from them you will try to mirror what you're hearing right that doesn't necessarily make that good or bad it's just what you have access you know what input you're getting right and i don't know that people think about that super consciously but if they hear something in their head they want to sound like a and they're hearing b in front of them and they're saying i don't want to sound like that mm. Uh, either the labor market or simply because they want to just want to sound like the other thing, right? And mm-hmm. in speaking of Canada, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, is that when I was in South Korea, um, I worked at a public school there. So I didn't 
the, those schools were fairer, which one you would expect from, you know, laws, but there were private schools that my friends worked at. And they said straight up that like, well, our ideal is a, is, you know, for the, the teachers we want is a white Canadian woman, um, <laughs> which is, I had friends who were white Canadian women, but I just thought it was funny that that's uh -huh. like in, in, cause South Korea is, you know, obviously American imperialism, big deal in South Korea, but um, they have switched their, the way they want people to sound is like actually, actually Canadian. I want them to sound mm. Canadian, which I just think is interesting. Um, I, I don't know why, but it's interesting that that is now how they've tweaked it from American version of English yes. to a Canadian version of standardized English. I just think that's funny. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of a it's 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 a big thing because we have to go deep into the roots of the issue. Like we're trying to make all these cosmetic changes. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. We hired more teachers of color. We hired more teachers who speak different languages. This is good. But if mm -hmm. they're still in the system that's based on the same epistemology of what's correct English and what's yes. pro proper and so forth, well, then we just, we just, it's just a coat of paint. You didn't fix yep. the problems. And totally. that doesn't mean you shouldn't put the paint on there. Mm -hmm. Like, because when I say that, people are like, well, we shouldn't do anything. I'm like, hey, that's not what I said. Um, <laughs> but like, you really have to, to, to dig deep into like yes. the, the conception of what, English even is, and it's true a lot of languages, but we're speaking of that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what counts as English, right? What counts yes. as valuable, right? And people point out to me, my dad pointed this out to me when he watched one of my presentations, because that's how dads are, um, that, uh, okay, we can do all this, but it is still true that for them, learning English gives them a better chance of getting a job. Mm -hmm. this is still true uh, yes. depending, depending on where they live and so on and so forth we don't have to pretend something that's not true that in an english dominant country right it will it will not be easier to get jobs if you speak english but mm -hmm. that's not i mean you know a lot of you're not doing anyone any favors right by yeah. denying that fundamental truth. right yes but i think one of the think projects I'm working on with VJ and with another scholar, uh, Scott Stiller, is okay. I talked about decentric whiteness, but what would ELT look like when there is no whiteness, right? You know, when they imagine, right? And one of the things is that like all of the different Englishes would not be seen in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's a Syrian, you said they're Syrian, right? A mm -hmm. Syrian version of English, like that would be seen as just as valuable. Right. They could then choose to add on a Canadian version of standardized English and then they'd have several different versions of English in their repertoire so it's something like that right but mm -hmm. that that that's going to take the changing of the foundation of the field and not just have it be that UK or American or Canadian English is is prized mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's deep that's deep and it kind of you know listening to you and the things that you're working on it reminds me that like I was kind of an interloper in my other project in the book too because I did have a little section in chapter four that was focused on a language classroom it was not an English classroom but it was a university classroom funded through the critical languages program through the department of defense where you know all across the country, you basically saw, particularly in public universities, this like growth in the offerings of Arabic language classes, Persian 
and language classes, classes that were tied to different national security issues, basically, and tons of federal funds were pumped into teaching U.S. college students these critical languages so that they could serve as translators or ambassadors, brokers, right, in places that the U.S. was invading, like Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. And so the funny thing that happened in the case of the group that I was studying for my PhD, these Iranians, was that people were taking these classes that they didn't necessarily expect to be there. So this was heritage students who were taking the opportunity to connect to their, you know, um, backgrounds, like to, you know, get kind of more formal education in languages that they heard around the house casually, those sorts of things. And so you had this like weird tense situation in the classroom when there was like poli-sci majors who were there to, you know, potentially like work as diplomats or do something like that. Yeah, work for the State Department or something. Yeah, exactly. But you also had like ROTC students who were earning an additional stipend from the military that was tied to their presence in the classrooms. Um, And so, yeah, I'm not like a student of education or linguistics, those sorts of fields, but it showed up in my project. It was kind of an inductive place where there were these power dynamics and these kinds of like everyday struggles um, that people were having and language was a site for that. I had a really good point and I, I'm trying to remember it for the last 20 seconds um, because I'm just like oh there he's got it but um, yeah one of the things that I think is really um, valuable about the work um, is that it doesn't just you know tell the story of a certain members of a community I mean that's very useful but it um, it really brings forth I think the I know there's, there's, there's more of an emotionality in, in, in the work than you find in, I know it's not technically an academic work by itself, but you know, in a, a public facing academic work, right? Um, and that I think is, is really left out of so much work. Um, you know, you that- so much. I'm pausing for a second. That's such a big compliment. I mean, I felt, Whoa. I mean, Thank well, you. I mean, it felt like, you know, it felt like a book. Um, and that, that should not be that big of a compliment. Uh, I'm not saying that about you. I'm saying that. About I know, your, I know what you mean. I know what you um, mean. Like, a, like, it doesn't feel like, like, okay, so these are the, here's, here's the findings and, yeah. and, you know, like, like they're clearly findings. I get it. These are things that you found. But like, <laughs> like uh, you know, and I know it wouldn't be labeled that way, even if it's a public based dynamic work, but it's just like oh, so much. Is, and, and one of the things that I've been working on or that I'm trying to work on in my next project is pointing out that that sort of, you know, I don't know what the opposite of emotionality is, but that dryness mm-hmm. or whatever yeah. is, is itself tied to to whiteness in the way yeah. that oh know. i would call it maybe like an emotional distance yeah right there's a sort of remove or um yeah you know and if you think that my book overcame some of that which is like endemic to the genre and endemic to academic writing then i'm very i'm really grateful for your compliment well i just i just i can't like if a book or anything is not it's if, the, if i don't feel like the author exists 
Mm. And then I don't really want to read it. I mean, maybe there's useful data in there and I'll just go look at it. Fine. But I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to get the data out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, but, but I make, but I have a point though, um, is that in some, one of the, the projects I'm working on is, is pointing out that that emotional distance, and I forget what I call it when I was writing an essay that I'm working on that's turning into the longer project, is that like that allows for things that are harmful to just sit there and not feel as harmful, right? Mm. One of the things that I, that I noticed is that like, you know, if you write everything in this detached way, then things don't seem all that different from one another. Um, mm. And so if, you know, if something is, when you look at it, like, wait a second, what's happening here in this study? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's written in this, like, if I read something that's detached, I'm not really paying that much yeah. attention to it. And something that I, if I were to go back and be like, wait a second, that was actually pretty terrible what was happening here. That's uh, so true. And that's think- such a cool metaphor, because if you're using the sort of, about distance and you're gonna have to send me the essay so that I can get your language more precise about your terminology but if you're playing around with this idea right of like emotional distance or whatever it is it's like yes things from a distance can all look the same right because stuff blurs stuff looks like it's bleeding into each other so it um as you're saying right it that detached and removed distance makes things look okay or look the same when actually if we were to have that zoomed in up close, look, we would be able to differentiate. We would be able to call a spade a spade more, right? About when something is harmful or when it's violent or toxic, for That's, sure. Because the example I use in, in the thing is I was talking about, everyone knows about the Tuskegee experiment, right? And it's very bad. I'm not trying to diminish it. But what I think is even more egregious, not maybe, but a different type of egregious is that like they were publishing about that for like 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, they weren't just doing it. They were writing papers about it, right? And they wrote all these papers in this detached Mm -hmm. clinical style talking about, well, you know, the, you know, because what they did and people have, people's impressions of it is a little bit wrong, right? They think that they injected them with stuff. They just didn't give them stuff. They just let them be sick, right? But if you write that in this detached way that now maybe I'm being an optimist, but uh, I think it's, if they were really honest about their callousness the whole time and were like included the emotional part to it, mm-hmm. I think people might have noticed a little bit earlier than they did. Because um, I mean, it was like 40 years that they mm-hmm. were, right, you know, building careers off of this publishing that yes. looked, looked like every other kind of publishing and I guess it was medical journals or whatever they were using. And, you know, it's the same way that if you speak this academic language, quote unquote, mm-hmm. right, you can get a lot of things published uh, that if you look back, you're just like, wait, why? No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I, I, I think it's hard sometimes to straddle that line between this quote unquote academic language and really trying to say something. But one thing that my director said to me in my first semester, um, I say my director, the director of the program uh, said to me in the first semester is like, make sure your voice is in your writing. I said, mm. are you, I said, are you sure? <laughs> Cause I don't know if he's, if he's, you know happy with the monster he's created but <laughs> like you know I, I said are you sure 
that that's what you want. Because um, I was still like a first semester student, I don't know what I was doing. Um, and so I said, okay, I will be in this writing. And I think that, you know, that's really, it's unfortunate, especially for racialized and other marginalized types of scholars who are not given that advice, mm -hmm. you know, or they are given the opposite advice, or they are taking cues from people to follow, you know, because what I was told, although I was told to keep my voice in my writing, um, the same time the classes I was getting were like, why don't you, like, yeah. if you want to, if you want to publish in this journal, read all of the articles in the journal and see what they're like. And I was like, okay. And I was like, I'm not writing any of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, this had an effect on me, but it's actually probably the opposite effect from what you thought. Yeah. Um, and every time they're like, this is the gold standard. I'm like, hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but who decided that? Yeah. Uh, and there's so many things, H index, all this stuff, you know? So I don't know. Um, so before I, I sign off here, I had one more thing I wanted to bring up before I do that is that like, I think that the, like, one of the things that I think people don't know about different areas is how much like literally in terms of skin color diversity, there is in a lot of places. I know race and skin color aren't the same thing, but I'm speaking specifically about skin color, right? Um, and the way that, you know, one can be white in so many different places uh, and how there will therefore end up being anti-blackness in so many different places. Uh, which is one of the reasons, which that's often what I pivot to when people ask me about whiteness being global. I'm like, well, anti-blackness is definitely global. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, I went a lot of places. It's it's everywhere. Um, <laughs> as soon as they determined I was black. First, they didn't know what I was. And then they were like, oh, oh, well, then no, we don't. <laughs> um, and, you know, aside from just how the United States thinks of things or Canada, I guess, where you live now, what were some of your um, things that you learned, not just from, you know, the things that you knew growing up, uh, but also in, in talking to people about the way that whiteness works, like in Iran, among, mm. among people when they're there now, not just the students who are living here now, but like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's such a really sharp and great question to end on. And I appreciate you bringing that up because, um, you know, a lot of the myths that I'm talking about, particularly in the earlier chapters of the book, you know, where I even mentioned them a bit earlier on the podcast where I said Iranians also sort of have their idea about race and where they fit, you know, sort of <laughs> in terms of the really, really long history of, you know, different civilizations encountering one another and so on and so forth. And so they have certain ideas um, that are rooted in like very ancient claims, but then, you know, like nation states are a modern invention. And so a lot of this has to do with mixtures and influences that have come from other parts of the world too. So in the same way that in my book, I spend a lot of ink, I'm spilling a lot of ink talking about ties to Nazi Germany and different ways that European racial science ideas were imported to Iran, but also at the same time, Iran itself, right, had its own uh, sort of um, internal uh color hierarchies that were also 
based on, you know, the traffic of people and ideas with other places too, with East Africa, with other places in Asia, right? And so some of the colorism that we see is like part of the global phenomenon, but also there, as you mentioned, there are people of every shade that have historically lived in Iran, even before the borders look like the borders we would see on a map today, right? There was constantly this kind of traffic of people such that that country now does have people who run the gamut of different skin tones. And so despite the fact that the lens of my book is really sort of squarely about whiteness and I'm interrogating certain myths that are you know, endemic to Iran and then also the ways that this community gets um, sort of integrated as a white ethnic group in places like the census and so on here in the US, nonetheless, right? There is like an incredible array of diversity in terms of the way people look um and that certainly like shows up as well in the young people who are in my study and so it's it's a bit tricky right like how do you write um about these sorts of things um and so if people are interested in my methods appendix i grapple right with some of the sort of ethics um around like how if if your book is supposedly about race like how do you actually account for what people look like without subjugating them to some like really you know problematic kinds of writing potentially you know um or or you know i hate like how Oftentimes, particularly in the English language, like we use euphemisms that have to do with food and drink to talk about people's skin tone. Like you did I think say olive in there. I saw. Yeah, olive. like it's it's so bad. Like <laughs> you know, olive. <laughs> yes, or like you know, cappuccino colored skin or caramel. milky skin, caramel, milky. Like ugh, you know, I do think I fell into the olive trap. That's just something you have to give me. Like it's sort of the, like the most classic example, but um, you know, I I think that's so weird and gross. And so it's sort of you know, I'm in the methods in appendix trying to grapple with how do you write about people's skin tone and avoid that kind of gross language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I am mostly avoiding that in my work by just saying people identify as white. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm just like, they said they were white, so. Um, mm-hmm. And, but I'm also not writing about people from other countries, like the people I'm writing about, like white teachers. Um, and me and myself, you know what I'm saying. Right, um, and they really don't want you to say mayonnaise or things like that, so <laughs> it's really kind of, you're limited in the kinds of food groups and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did, I did have a, a racist coworker who loved mayonnaise, which I thought was funny. Um, I'm just like, you're just, you're just falling in the stereotype <laughs> trap over here, like just... I feel like if she had a jar, she had a jar. If we end this episode on mayonnaise, then it's just like my life is complete. I wrote a book called Limits of Whiteness, and we ended up talking about mayonnaise on the podcast. You know, I I um, I'm not a huge fan. It's it's not a huge. I mean, unless it's like in like it's in the tuna, like then it's it's like subsumed, subsumed. But I will never put mayonnaise on anything. No, it must be fully incorporated into other things exactly. of color. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And that is ultimately my long-term goal as, as a theorist, analyst, whatever it is that I am out here, because I feel like 
you know, like th this category really just is, is about exclusion more than anything else, right? Because if people, if, if, like taking the literal crayon colors out of it, because that's what people do when they don't want to engage seriously with the issue, right? So those two men did on the, in the Twitter argument started talking about like, well, you know, I'm pink and brown. I'm like, all right, dude. Um, <laughs> it, when you take the crayon colors out of it and think about, but we use, we still have to use colors because race is weird. Um, the, the whole thing is that like this, this concept of, of whiteness is, is much more, I think about who doesn't get to be white, um, who, who, who is, doesn't get to be white and therefore deserves what society throws at them. Um, and right. who, who gets to be over there receiving everything else from us in the, in this group. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that's why I'm trying to do something about it, but we'll see what actually happens. It's so exciting. You're writing essays, you're writing other stuff people are gonna learn about later. You're making podcasts. You are such a busy young scholar. It is really, really impressive and commendable. So every so often I finish one of these episodes and the person says something nice about me and I feel kind of weird because it seems like I'm editing things to make it Yeah, look then you're like, subtle. mic drop and I'm out. <laughs> But I also always include the part where I say it feels weird, but people say these things about me. So it's kind of meta, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, speaking of meta, meta, thank you for joining me on the episode. It worked. It worked, right? Kind of. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and I had a really good time talking to you. And this, um, I feel like this, you know, I talk a lot about different versions of whiteness and the way, you know, the way that the little description refers to it as epistemological whiteness um, and really thinking about the issue from a lot of different angles, because I think, especially in the United States and Canada, we tend to think about, we think about Black people, we think about Indigenous people, we think about, you know, Latinx people, and maybe we think about refugees, maybe, but mm -hmm. we don't think about the different ways that whiteness itself manifests it's just like there's this unmarked group and then there's all mm -hmm. these different groups that they impact and those groups are important and obviously i'm in one of them but we don't really think about the complexity of whiteness itself i think and it, your book and your work has helped me you know add a few more shades to my understand shades um <laughs> to my understanding of the concept that i spend all of my time talking about so thank you for that Oh, I appreciate you. Thanks so much for this opportunity. I was really honored. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs>